Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Hey guys, how's it going? Great. Good. How are you? Thank you for having us on, Matt. Um, thanks for uh, reaching out, uh, Hiram and Vernalyn Lewis. The myth of left and right, how the political spectrum misleads and harms America. Um, you guys may or may not know this, but this is an issue near and dear to my heart. Um, I've been trying to make sense of, of political polarization and tribalism and why it is that we've been taught all these years that, that Pol Pot and Adolf Hitler were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. Um, so you guys are adding some intellectual heft to to my sort of heft-baked thinking on this stuff. Um, maybe we could get a little bit of background first. Uh, we'll start with, with Hiram. Uh, you teach where and how did you get into this stuff? Uh, yeah, I teach at uh, BYU-Idaho. I'm a professor of history here. Uh, I got into this stuff just because I, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the history of conservatism, and I realized that my subject was a phantom, that there is no such thing as conservatism, that there is a tribe, and that tribe will believe different things at different times, but there's no philosophical core behind what they claim to believe, and that's why what is considered left-wing and right-wing is constantly changing. When Barry Goldwater believed in lower taxes, uh, excuse me, higher taxes and less government in the 1960s, that was considered extreme right wing. When George W. Bush pursued the opposite policies in the early 2000s, that was considered extreme right wing. So right wing, I realized, has no meaning independent of the tribe. So it's a tribal designation, not a philosophical de designation. And that's what we mean by the myth of left and right is uh, people think that left and right, that there is a issue, a philosophical issue that divides these two sides. And we, we point out and, and demonstrate that that's simply not so. Verlin. Yeah. So uh, I'm a political scientist at Utah Valley University. And I got into this because uh, Hiram brought me along. He uh, just again, back to when he was doing this research, kind of talking to me about it. And I thought, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Um, but no one else is pointing it out. It's really kind of like uh, the emperor has no clothes, but uh, I think Hiram's the first person that pointed it out to me. So I got really interested in it, started doing some research on it as well, have, um, have published some things that are related, but um, was really happy to join Hiram when he asked me to work on this book with him. So it's been a fun project. And who's, who's the publisher of the book, by the way? Yeah, so uh, Oxford University Press uh, was published actually just last week. Um, so it's it's brand new, um, and we're thrilled that they were wanting to publish it. Is this one of those expensive academic books that, that us uh, uh, rank-and-file types can't afford? Yeah, uh, we lucky for you, we actually talked to the press about that, and so they published it simultaneously in hardback and paperback. So... The hardback, I'm sure, is very expensive, and the libraries will buy that. But we're hopeful that the paperback is more affordable for most folks. And it's and it's important to point out that you are the much younger brother in this scenario, much, right? Much younger, yeah. Much younger. <laughs> well, let let's get into it. I I I think I first found you guys. I believe it was a Wall Street Journal piece that you guys had co-authored, and I think it was in response to Elon Musk. Uh, posting that that comic about how he used to be considered mainstream left and now he's considered far right and 
And um, that's when I noticed that this this is something that I find particularly fascinating in the context of of the Twitter files and the Twitter wars and and this hyper partisanship. And, and people have always struggled to identify me. If you Googled me, I would be viewed as a person of the right, and I've I've never really considered myself that. Um, but was that like when did you guys? think that this was the moment to, to try to get people to think differently about the, the political spectrum? Maybe I can jump on first here. Well, I think it's been appropriate for a long time. Um, as soon as I, I, I became aware of the myth of left and right, I mean, it's always a good time to debunk myths um, because the left-right spectrum presumes there's only one issue in politics. And that's what, that's what we obviously have to see. I mean, a, a unidimensional spectrum can only model one thing. But if politics is about multiple things, then we can't put it on a single dimension. So if the Republican Party becomes more free market, oh, that's a move to the right. If it becomes less free market and more authoritarian, as I think it has done under Trump, that's also considered a move to the right. So we're just talking absurdities because we're, we're assuming there's just one dimension to politics. We have to break it down into multiple dimensions. Now, once upon a time in, say, the 1930s, when the New Deal was the one issue that dominated national politics, a left-right spectrum more or less worked. It basically just modeled where you were on the New Deal. If you were in favor of the New Deal, that was considered liberal left. If you were in against the New Deal, that was considered conservative right. But over time, we got more and more issues coming online and, you know, gay marriage and war in Iraq and abortion and all these other kinds of things. And so a single issue spectrum simply wasn't going to work anymore. And so we see all kinds of confusion. People, when the Republican Party moves in a big government direction, people call it a rightward move. And people then assume that the Republican Party is slack government spending. Um, it, it's, a, it's a tool of defamation. Uh, somebody like you who believes in liberty, they say, oh, well, he's on the same side as Adolf Hitler because they're both right wing. And if you take uh, Kibbe's uh, views on liberty too far, you'll wind up where Hitler is, which is manifestly absurd. So it's always been a good time to debunk myths. Um, but now with the Trumpist direction of the Republican Party, it's just a better time than ever. Yeah, yeah and I might just go ahead. jump in there. So uh, our publisher actually... Um, published the book on January 6th, all right, so the anniversary of the assault on the Capitol building. And we thought that was appropriate because we think that left-right thinking actually promotes that kind of behavior uh, because it deludes people into thinking that all of their issue positions are tied together by a coherent philosophy and that all the issue positions of the other political party are tied together by a coherent and enduring transcendent philosophy. And so if you think about politics in that way, then you have convinced yourself that you have the correct position on all of the issues and your political opponents have the wrong position on every single issue. And so that causes people to start thinking, well, maybe violence justifies stopping the outcome of elections. You know, we can't uh, stand to let this other group, which is totally opposed to everything I believe in, uh, come into power. And so I think the left-right thinking deludes people and it makes them um, more hostile, more angry, more willing to use violence to get their way in politics. I think that's a danger for democracy, um, especially a, a pluralistic democracy. That's what we need in this country. So I want to go back, um, and I, I don't precisely remember this, but you guys are political scientists, so I'm hoping that that you know this. But I believe it was Madison who was particularly anxious about the emergence of, of partisan parties in the, in the early evolution of, of, of American constitutional democracy. Am I getting that right? And, 
And and how did we get to this this partisan model when it wasn't really in the design that the founders had in mind? So when the Constitution was framed, of course, uh, the writers of the Constitution weren't really thinking that they were creating a partisan system. A lot of them criticized partisanship, especially George Washington, famously in his farewell address, criticized the spirit of party. But ironically, some of those same people were the ones that founded the first political party. So Madison and Jefferson together formed the Republican Party in the 1790s. Hamilton and Adams formed the Federalist Party. We're actually not critics of partisanship per se. Um, The United States has benefited from parties for a long time. What we're critical of is ideologism or the false belief that all the issue positions of each of the parties are tied together by some coherent philosophy, because that delusion causes people to act dogmatically and in a tribal uh, manner. So we're not actually critical of the two-party system or of parties in particular, but we're critical of the left-right spectrum. Okay. Um, Hiram, the, 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 the description that I've always used for um, parties and having having been way too close to politics at certain part, parts in my career, I always viewed it as kind of an empty vessel and you you would use um, grassroots pressure and coalition building and philosophy and ideology to try to fill that empty vessel with something that was hopefully coherent. Um, is that consistent with, with your theory on things? Because in my lifetime alone, the Republican Party has taken pretty much almost every position on everything. Um, are you guys saying the same thing or is, do you have a different view? No, we, we have the same view. I mean, so, so partisanship, um, partisanship is probably inevitable. Um, and so we have two political tribes, but what we are trying to get people to do is to stop the delusion that the, that the parties are philosophically coherent, right? So, so we could, a metaphor we often use is, is baskets of groceries. Now, currently, if you go to the grocery store, you just pick out what you want. You pick out some tortillas, you pick out some peanut butter, you pick out some Swiss cheese. There's no coherence. It's just what you individually like. But what if they stood out in front of the store with two carts of groceries and said, pick A or B? That's basically how it is when we go into the voting booth. Now, you would pick one of the carts based on which one you like better. Okay, this one has things more things I like than the other one. Um, however, what you wouldn't want to do and what we do in politics is say, actually, Everything in this basket of groceries is better better than everything in that basket of groceries, because all of these things are philosophically tied together. And this is why there's so much rancor in politics today, because people really do believe that it's not just a coalition with things I agree with and disagree with. No, no, no. I'm fighting for a philosophy. I'm fighting for my deepest convictions. I'm fighting for principles. If people can just realize that the parties are not based on ideologies or, or, or philosophies, coherent philosophies, it really would lower the temperature. And we could start listening to each other and say, look, tell me why you believe what you do. I'm not right about everything. It would, it would increase the humility and say, you know, I'm not certain. I have strong feelings about this, but not about that. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? But when you think, no, 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 you adopt the correct view on this one fundamental issue for progress. I'm a progressive. Therefore, everything the Democratic Party believes promotes progress and everything the Republican Party believes tries to stop progress. And therefore, there's no compromise to be had. There's no thinking to be done. Yeah. I don't know if we're making sense. No, it, it, so, it, and you both, I believe, co-authored a piece uh, criticizing the, the, that recent conference on national conservatism, um, I think aptly describing it as this, this looks like a New Deal um, 
Roosevelt as much as it does national conservatism, and it sort of it sort of heightens this point that it's that it's it's more tribal, um, maybe cultural, um, the divide, and it it's sort of ideologically devoid. Uh, maybe I'm not using ideology the same way you guys are, but um, I don't know if you've heard uh, Senator Mike Lee describe this. He, Senator Mike Lee is a constitutional conservative. Um, I think in in many ways a classical a classical liberal. And his point, he thinks all the rancor comes from the fact that we're putting more and more power in these political fights, like whoever wins the presidency wins everything, and whoever loses the presidency um, realizes that that other tribe is going to use the power of the state to force them to comply with their preferences, whatever those are. Um, do, you, do you buy that way of thinking about this escalation and this power fight and and a lot of the anxiety and anger that led to January 6th? I think that's right. I mean, you know, as someone who kind of studies American political history, I think we have seen a clear trend of more and more power concentrating in the national government at the expense of the states. And then within the national government, more and more power being concentrated in the presidency at the expense of the other branches of government. I do think this is a real problem. Um, and so I think that is another factor that leads to so much of the, the anger and the vitriol that we see in our politics today, that people think, you know, this is the flight 93 election, this is the last chance we have. So we have to excuse or justify everything that our group does because the other side is worse. Right? And, and they're gonna use um, the levers of power to, to push their policies. And so unfortunately, Right. The the vision for the American Republic originally was a pluralistic republic, as Madison described, with a variety of factions and no one group having a majority of the power. Um, but unfortunately, we've come to the point where we have two tribal groups in our politics who now say enough with pluralism, enough with limited government. You know, who cares about the rule of law or the separation of powers or any of that? Let's just get power and push our policies down the throats of our opponents. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Yeah, I feel like national conservatism kind of embraced uh, Saul Alinsky in a in a very in the way that Alinsky was very cynical. Um, this is about political ma- manipulation so that our guys have power. Um, that that to me is a is a radical divergence away from where uh, the Tea Party was a decade ago, looking to sort of restore constitutional limits on the power of the state and and. Suddenly, we're here, and I'm I'm a little mystified at how quickly that happened. And the way that we yeah. even talk about politics is so confused because if you read journalists or even political scientists, uh, ordinary people who talk about politics, they say, "Oh, the Republican Party has moved to the extreme right." Well, what does that even mean? I mean, in the last ten years, has the Trump Party really moved away from big government? No. <laughs> Have they, you know, cut the deficit? No. Um, have they promoted free trade? No. I mean, you go down every single issue, they're basically promoting the policies that Democrats used to promote, and somehow we're calling that extreme right wing. So our whole vocabulary of politics is so confused right now. 
And if I, I just might chime in here. Yeah, sorry. I, I just because you mentioned the National Conservatism Conference. One of the main points we make is that ideologies, conservative, liberal, those are ex post stories we tell. You really could take any combination of, of, of policies, any, any of them. You could, you could take all the policies, put them in a bag, mix them up, draw out 20 random policies, and then invent a story showing how all those policies were conservative. So this National Conservatism Conference, no, we're the true conservatives and, and all the policies that they're advancing. You could just as easily make up a conservative story about the opposite policies. So what people think, this is the big fallacy is they think when it comes to politics, you start with a philosophy. You start with either conservative or liberal. Then you use that philosophy to think yourself to a whole bunch of policies on taxes, on abortion, on war, all these different things. And then you join the tribe that just happens to agree with you on everything. It turns out the evidence shows that that's exactly backwards. People start with the tribe. You anchor into a tribe probably because of peer groups, right? If you're an academic, you all your peers are in the left-wing tribe. So you anchor into that. Then you adopt all of the policies of the tribe as a matter of socialization. And then, and only then, does ideology come along. Then you invent a story saying, okay, here's all these things that I've adopted because of tribal beliefs. Let me make up a story how all of them are liberal, are conservative, are progressive, are left-wing, are right-wing. It's, it's an after-the-fact story, which is no different in its intellectual approach than astrology. So, so the entirety of our political discourse is based on something as flimsy, as silly, and as demonstrably false as astrology. And that's where we are. And the entire political science profession is enthralled to this astrological idea. So, so thinking about uh, Republicans, I'm going to keep talking to you, Hiram. The, 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 you know, and I think I've seen you talk about this before, but uh, is how much of it is, is kind of a cult of personality defined by it, it seems like parties struggle to define what they're about when they're when they're quote in the wilderness and they don't have the White House. So you, during the Reagan years, there was there was Reaganism. Um, during the Bush years, um, when the neocons were in, in ascendancy, there was there was um, I'll call it nation building. It, I guess he called it compassionate conservative. Those things don't necessarily go together. Um, and then with with Trump, it was um, MAGA. America first and and all of that like those I would argue Reaganism is seems more coherent to me but um, they're just driven by what the policies were that were pursued by the guy that won the, the presidency is that is there a lot of cult of personality driven in this tribalism no question. We see that throughout history, that tribes often organize around a unifying figure. And even if they don't, even if they unify around something else, generally some cult-like unifying figure will come along to kind of head the tribe and that determines the tribe's direction. So absolutely, what is considered right-wing is, and I mean this literally and people aren't going to believe me, but it's absolutely true. Right-wing today means 100% whatever Trump is doing. If Trump tomorrow decided to nationalize the entire economy, that would be considered right-wing, and I'm not kidding. If Trump declared tomorrow open borders, that would be considered right-wing. You don't believe me? Imagine what would happen if, if all these immigrants and their children started voting Republican overnight. I guarantee you that the left-wing tribe would freak out and try to close down the border. There's no question about that. Everybody knows it's true once you stop to think about it. So yes, the, the tribal leader, the cult of personality is very real. It goes tribe, then policies, then philosophy, and tribe right is currently defined by a cult-like figure, Donald Trump. That's the beginning and end of what right-wing ideology means today. People are trying to say, no, 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 there's some core of beliefs there, and there really isn't. Yeah. yeah. It, it reminds me. Go ahead. happened with uh, you know, liberal philosophy in the 1930s. You know, historians have uh, recognized this and understood it, that in the 19th century and the early 20th century, 
Liberalism meant limited government. It meant free markets, less government intervention in the economy. And Franklin Roosevelt ran for president in 1932 as a liberal, accusing Hoover of spending too much, of busting the budget, of too much government intervention. And he got elected, saying we need to stop concentrating power in D.C. We've got to stop all the spending. We've got to balance the budget. All those things, typical liberal fare for 1932. Once he becomes president, what does he do? All the stuff that he criticized Hoover for doing, but even more. And he called it liberal. So what did all the liberals do? They justified what the leader of their tribe was doing. And so he changed the meaning of liberalism in the 1930s. And it has continued to evolve over the past 90 years. And the same thing with conservatism. These are post hoc stories, as Hiram says, and their content and meaning is always changing to justify whatever their tribal leader and their group is doing. I'm thinking of, uh, there's a famous George Orwell quote where he's lamenting the fact that fascism, and I'm, he's surely writing this in the 1940s, um, that fascism has stopped meaning anything because it's just a pejorative where you're calling somebody else a bad name. Like you're, you're the bad guy, you're a bully, you're, you're an a-hole, that kind of thing. And um, the, the F word is used so often today in all these words, like they're, um, I once in a while remind people, you know, um, fascism actually has, there's a meaning, there's a definition to that word and you're not getting it. And to reduce our politics to a unidimensional spectrum, you know, falsely associates, you know, anyone say, you know, Milton Friedman, who had the exact opposite policies on every issue from Adolf Hitler, and yet somehow they're considered both right wing. So it's a way to slander people that you disagree with. And we think that's another reason we need to abandon the left right spectrum is because it justifies bigotry uh, and it justifies hatred in, in our politics. Yeah, the Nancy McLean, um, Naomi Klein nonsense. How can they get away with it? The political spectrum is the only reason that what they say has any kind of purchase because it's factual nonsense. If you look at the policies that James Buchanan pursued, they were against racism. They were in favor of free markets. They were against everything the Nazis stood for. And yet Nancy McLean says Adolf Hitler was radical right. James Buchanan is radical right. Therefore, they're the same. Please freak out about the free market ideas of people at George Mason University because it's right wing and ergo fascist. If you broke it down and said, let's forget left, right, there is no such thing as the spectrum. There's really not. Let's just look at policies. Adolf Hitler, socialist. James Buchanan, limited government. Uh, Adolf Hitler, racist, anti-Semitic. Milton Friedman, Jewish, very in favor of racial equality. Once you do that, these kinds of slanders can't, can't take hold. So the left, right spectrum is not only misleading, it's a tool of slander, it's a tool of self-delusion, and it's a way to dismiss arguments we don't agree with without engaging them. It makes us intellectually lazy. So where did this, um, where did this left-right mythology, when was it born? Because I was definitely taught this in high school, um, in civics class, and, and even, even at that tender young age, I'm like, uh, when you dig into the policies of Pol Pot or Mao or Stalin and compare them to Hitler and to a lesser extent Mussolini, um, they kind of look the same. Like you know, different different colors. Their their flags had different colors in them, but they were kind of the same thing. And it never made sense to put them at extremes of of the same spectrum. Where, what's the history on this? I mean, you can answer this. Go one. ahead, Verla. Oh, okay. Want me to chime in? Uh, yeah. So, um, 
So as far as we can tell, the French Revolution, and the reason we talk about wings is because buildings have wings. And so opponents of the French Revolution or supporters of the king would sit on the right side of the hall, on the right wing. And then opponents of the king, supporters of the revolution, would sit on the left side of the hall, the left wing. Now, as we document in our book, this way of thinking was confined to Europe, and it was fairly marginal for, for over a century. And in America, as a matter of fact, you... <laughs> It doesn't appear in our political discourse at all. It is entirely absent. It's not there. When, when Abraham Lincoln was president, he didn't talk about left wing, right wing. He didn't talk about policies being left wing. He simply said, I stand for a protective tariff. I'm opposed to slavery. Right? He would just simply list his policies. He had no delusion that they were all somehow connected philosophically. Okay, so that so we simply had two parties and people understood parties stood for a bunch of, of different things. Um, in the early 20th century, right about the end of World War One, and it coincides with the Bolshevik Revolution, what you see is a, 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 a shooting upward in the use of left-right terminology, meaning that the political spectrum became a common way to look at politics. It wasn't there. If you look at newspapers, magazines, public discourse from 1915, you know, if you talk about left-wing, right-wing, people assume you're talking about football. You're talking about hockey. You're talking about uh, military formations. You're talking about airplanes. You're talking about architecture. It has no political connotations whatsoever. Starting in about 1919, it crosses the ocean and, and reporters started referring to what was going on in Russia in terms of left-right. Not American politics, but Russian politics. Uh, you've got these different factions of socialists. You've got the Bolshevik socialists on the left wing and then these other kinds of socialists on the so-called right wing. And they were just reporting. Eventually, Senator Robert La Follette brought that way of thinking into American politics and said, actually, our parties have wings. And I stand on the left wing of the Republican Party, said La Follette. So it's in the 1920s when this left-right way of thinking grows, and it's grown like a cancer ever since. And you just see it going up unabated. And the amount of usage of the left-right terms ha has just been going up nonstop. It's, it's time to stop the madness. It's time to stop the silliness. We need to get over childish things. Like Verlin said, we need to just point out that the emperor has no clothes. There's more than one issue in politics. Can we please stop pretending there is with this ridiculous left-right spectrum nonsense? Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. But the parties thrive on this stuff, right? The, 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 like, and I would argue this is more true today, but maybe it's always been true. The, the party in power um, is not necessarily doing a good job at um, doing what they're supposed to be doing. Let's say crazy, crazy old-fashioned stuff like, passing a budget and 13 appropriations bills. They, they don't do that anymore. Um, but they don't, they don't run on their own failure. They run against those other guys. Like um, the other team is literally fascist and we must, we must destroy them. Otherwise, uh, democracy itself, what is um, this? Democracy has become um, the equivalent of a civic religion. They say it, I don't know what it means, but they say democracy. Um, so I, I would assume that this has been weaponized in large part to keep uh, the partisan parties um, from being accountable for what, what, what they've done. Yeah, the parties definitely have incentives to prop up this myth uh, because it turns their base out and allows them to run on something. And so they tell the members of their party, look, all of these issue positions that we've happened to 
aggregate together, have a coherent philosophy that are all bound together by the philosophy of progress or conservatism, uh, even though they're all different than they were 15 or 20 years ago, never mind that. Uh, and our political opponents, the other party, they're wrong about everything. And they're animated by an evil philosophy that binds together all of their issue positions. And so you have to show up at the voting booth and vote for our party to preserve the Republic because the other guys are going to end the country. And so, yeah, the parties have an incentive to promote this myth, unfortunately. And so what it's going to require is ordinary people just demanding uh, that we talk about politics in a more granular way, in a more coherent and nuanced way, and, and stop with the, the slandering and the vitriol and the anger. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add one more thing. I mean, to use our grocery cart analogy, what's going to get more donations flowing? In? If, if you tell people the reality that there's two carts of groceries, some of the things in our party are good, some of the things in our party are bad, you know, it, that reality that neither side, neither party has a monopoly on all the correct, that's not going to get as many donations. That's not going to get people as fired up. So absolutely, the parties have every incentive in the world to perpetuate this myth. We can't rely on the parties to get away with this myth because they won't do it. Their power is maintained, their grip, the, the duopoly is Harvard's Michael Porter calls it, uh, is served by the ideological myth. Yeah, the duopoly has done a tremendously good job of, of preventing um, diversity in our political choices. Um, but I, I wonder what you guys think of the trend. I, I just looked up, and I won't quote the numbers because I'll get them wrong, but the trend in voter registration is away from being a Republican or a Democrat. And, and the majority of Americans who are registered to vote today are independents. And that, that trend line is is pretty decisive. It strikes me that, and I, I view this as progress in a sense because um, Americans, uh, particularly younger Americans today, I think are more used to shopping a la carte when it comes to you know what they watch on Netflix or what they listen to on Spotify. And in a lot of ways, politics, when you go to the voting booth and you're like, really? I only have two choices? And, and maybe there's a third choice. Maybe there's a libertarian. Maybe there's a Green Party person. You've never heard of them because they weren't allowed to, to speak at the, at the debates. Um, but it seems like there's a culture clash in the sense that um, um, the younger you are, you're, you're more used to getting to choose everything. And then you get to politics and you're like, so I got to choose between Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. What is that? Or or Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Like, what what kind of a choice is that exactly? That's not a question, but I want you to comment on it. <laughs> to your point, Matt, I think uh, that's another reason we think this is a timely book. Um, it is true that for much of the last few decades, America has been divided roughly equally between one third Republican, one third Democrat, and one third Independent. But as you point out, in recent years, there has been a rise in independence. And I think that has to do with increasing dissatisfaction among a lot of Americans with what's on offer uh, by the two major parties. And so we're hopeful that this book can change the way people think about politics and say, let's stop with the silly left-right nonsense and just talk about issues. And I think that would cause our two parties to start being more responsible, right? Because they'd actually have to uh, offer up real policy and real candidates um, instead of well, who, who cares if our candidate is so horrible, the other guy's even worse because they're on the other side of the spectrum. I, I just think the spectrum thinking 
allows for um, a lot of mediocrity in our politics and justifies a lot of bad candidates and, and bad policies in our politics. And, and maybe when it comes to, you know, you're talking about the young people, Matt, uh, maybe when it comes to young people, there's some good news and bad news. The good news is, and I think this is, there's psychological reasons for it, that, that the younger brain is more plastic. And so youth are more malleable, they're more open-minded. Um, they are more willing to challenge um, uh, preconceived notions. So we get a lot more pushback from older people who have spent their entire lives invested in the left-right categorization and, and are just are just clinging to it like like grim death. Um, they they won't surrender this paradigm because they've had it their whole life and their brains are just very fixed on it. Uh, young people we find are more open. They say, yeah, that makes sense. More than one issue in politics. Yeah, okay, I, I'm on board. That's the good news. Is the young people are open-minded, so I think they are more likely to discard the left-right spectrum. The bad news is, is all of the survey data I've seen suggests that younger people in America today are more authoritarian, believe less in free speech, believe more in speech codes, uh, are more likely to believe in uh, greater economic controls and so on and so forth. So I think there's some good news and bad news politically when it comes to the youth of America right now. Yeah, the authoritarian trend, and I uh, that sort of leads into my next question. Um, the um, In a lot of ways, the the, the fight uh, that Elon Musk kind of started, the fight was already there, but um, the trend, uh, the fight over free speech, I'll take use that as an example. It strikes me that there's no left or right there. There's authoritarian, and then there's freedom of speech, uh, and your right to speak your mind in the public square. And in that sense, Elon Musk so far has come down as pretty decisively anti-authoritarian. Um, Joe Rogan, Glenn Greenwald, other people that that um, would traditionally be viewed as as on the left, are emerging as anti-authoritarian. But um, it it doesn't make any to your point exactly. It doesn't make any sense to try to drop these people in the left-right spectrum because they're 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 generally just um, mystified as to where this you're not allowed to speak anymore trend came from in America. That that used to be sort of one of our one of our sacred um, values as Americans, you know, there's even a Norman Rockwell painting celebrating the guy that gets up in the town hall meeting and speaks his mind. Um, now that's considered violence by some people. Um, so the authoritarian streak, um, do you think it comes directly from this confusion? Are these things related? Go ahead, Roland. Well, I do think, you know, you bring up the Musk cartoon. I think that's a really interesting example. Um, so he posted this on Twitter for those uh, listeners who aren't familiar with what, what happened. And he did what most people do, which we think is a wrong way of thinking about politics, arguing that the two parties have moved farther away from each other on this left-right spectrum. And so his cartoon showed, you know, liberals moving to the extreme left. Now, of course, what what sparked him posting that or talking about in that way was how Team Blue has given up their traditional defense of free speech. That used to be something that Tribe Left was in favor of. You know, you go back to the 1960s, the free speech movement, that was clearly something that the Democratic Party and Team Blue was more in favor of. They've abandoned that. And so he was giving that as an example of them moving to the uh, extreme left. But of course, that doesn't make sense. Why would that be a move to the extreme left uh, to, to turn against free speech when once upon a time that was a defining feature of, of the left? So there's no coherent or enduring issue positions or content to these labels left 
and right. They're simply social groups. And what happened in reality is that Team Red, once upon a time, used to control um, cultural centers of power. And so dissenting speech was critical of those institutions that they controlled. And so, of course, they were less friendly to freedom of speech back in the 1960s. It's all changed over the last half century. Now Team Blue controls these elite centers of cultural authority and dissenting voices are now considered on the right. I mean, it's it's simply a left and right only tells us who is on your team. It does tells us nothing about the issue positions or the content of your views. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, oh, keep going. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, it's just so funny. I hear all these things of how Noam Chomsky is a traitor. He used to be a great leader of the left, but then he signed this right-wing Harper's letter in favor of open expression and blah, blah, blah. He moved to the right is the common narrative. This is just, it's, it's just so, you just want to throw up your hands and roll your eyes. He did not move at all. Noam Chomsky for his entire life has believed in free speech. That used to be considered left-wing, now it's considered right-wing. He is entirely consistent in his positions. I don't agree with Noam Chomsky about a lot of things, but I do admire his consistency. He has been anti-militarist. He doesn't care if it's the left-wing doing the militarism or the right-wing doing the militarism. Whereas most tribal partisans will just shift and be anti-militarist one minute, pro-militarist the next, depending on what the tribe is doing. So this idea that he's moved right, no, it's the right, the meaning of the right that's moved, not Noam Chomsky. And we use this metaphor of people moving right-wing and left-wing around on the spectrum when it's totally misleading, it's the definitions of right and left that are changing. What was considered left-wing in the 1950s, belief in free speech, is now considered right-wing. In, in 2005, believing in the Iraq war was considered right-wing, and George W. Bush was considered an extreme rightist. Why? Because he invaded Iraq. Along comes Donald Trump and repudiates the invasion of Iraq, says we shouldn't have done it, it was a bad idea. Do people say, oh, the Republican Party has moved to the left? No, they just redefined right-wing to be whatever Trump is doing. Um, it, you know, you can see our frustration of how misguided our discourse is and how completely unproductive, misleading, and, and ultimately um, um, decency destroying it is. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So what's the, um, let's, uh, I, need, I need to be white-pilled here because I, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying and you're, you're, you're reaffirming some of, some of the observations that I've been struggling with. But is there, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Because I, I think a lot of this, in the context, and I'll, I'll throw my theory at you, that we're in the middle of this this paradigm shift where um, there used to be all of these top-down institutions, and not not just government, not just politics, not just political parties, but um, uh, um, media voices like Walter Cronkite and and um, CEOs and and all of these top-down institutions kind of used to tell us what to do and think, and. As technology has broken apart a lot of those top-down institutions, or at least exposed them for, for not being nearly as reliable as, as we thought they were for being potentially hypocritical and, and two-faced, um, we're lunged into this period where, um, in some ways, it's, it's radically democratic, 
and we have all these multiple sources for information, and we're realizing that our politicians are hypocrites and all that stuff. Um, and but we don't really know how to function in that that world where we're more um, empowered in a lot of ways. So it it just looks like um, it looks like a big food fight. Is are we in the middle of something? Like how do we get out of this? I'm a, I'm a pessimist, and then I'd love to hear what Verlin has to say. I, I'm afraid I <laughs> I look in the future and just see uh, very little good news. Um, there is a, a crisis of credibility. Some people say, well, this is good. These institutions need to be discredited. I don't agree because I'm not an anarchist. I think anarchy is terrible. I think we need strong, um, reliable authorities to prevent anarchy. The government, at least among it, it needs to be limited but strong in what it does. And as we distrust the CDC, for instance, that's going to be bad for public health. Now, why did they lose their trust? We do think it's, you were asking us a moment ago if we think the authoritarianism that's rising and the left-right way of thinking uh, rising, if those are related, I would say absolutely so. Because notice what happened during the pandemic. People, instead of following the science, which they kept claiming to do, they would simply say, well, what is considered progressive? What does my tribe do? And once I follow my tribe, well, then I know what the answer is ex ante, because whatever the tribe is doing is necessarily promoting social justice. So I don't have to verify. It used to be that, that knowledge is something we found out ex post. We found it out after going through a process of inquiry, and then we'd arrive at, okay, this is what science says. During the pandemic, no, 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 there's the good guys and the bad guys. The right wing is bad because they're fascist, blah, blah, blah. And the left wing is good, and therefore, whatever the left wing stand for, I'm going to stand for regardless of what actual scientific inquiry says. And that cost them a ton of credibility. When, when Fauci comes out and says, you know, um, masks are as useful as vaccines. This is complete nonsense. And he knew it was nonsense. But then when the vaccine comes out, well, they said, well, masks don't seem to do much. So why should I take a vaccine? He'll cost himself credibility. People don't listen to the CDC anymore. And so there's all these ideas. Well, in red America, they don't listen to public health authorities. There's good reason for that. I'm not saying they were good. They were right to be against vaccine. But I understand why they were against vaccines, because the left right way of thinking made people take positions that ultimately cost them credibility. If we get rid of the left right right spectrum, there will be more truth seeking and there will be more um, open mindedness rather than declaring ahead of time the correct answer based on tribalism. And then you would have more um, believable science. Same thing in the universities. Why do people not trust university research? Because most people are tribal universities. Most of our colleagues, we, they know what they're going to find before they go out and look. It's, it, there's a lot of confirmation bias. So if you're outside the academy, you say, well, why, why should I listen to anything, any of these studies coming out? Because I know they're ideologically driven. Good point. And so the good work that comes out of the academy, and there is a lot of it, gets tainted by association with the incredible ideologism that, that has, has taken over what we're doing. I, I want to hear what Berlin has to say. No, I mean, I would just re reiterate what Hiram said about there is a connection between the rise in authoritarianism and the rise of left-right thinking. And it's exactly what he said. The, the myth of left and right tells people that once you sign on to a group, well, you're done thinking. You have all the answers, right? Because you're on the correct side of a spectrum. And all those issue positions are correct because they all flow out of a correct philosophy. And so why, why question? Why dissent? Why do science? Which science isn't, um, it, well, science is a method. It's challenging, it's testing hypotheses. Uh, but if you have a left-right spectrum, you already know you have all the right answers. And so you're done testing or thinking or debating or engaging in discourse. That I'll use the vaccine as an example. You can go on, on YouTube and watch um, 
one progressive after another pledged to never take the Trump vaccine. And fast forward just a couple months when um, uh, President Joe Biden um, accused Facebook of literally killing people. I think that was his quote um, for for allowing um, vaccine skepticism. And it it, it fits your your narrative 100 percent. And and we sort of marvel and wonder how it is that if you go on Twitter and you look at the emojis besides somebody's um, fake name, if they have a little um, uh, uh, vaccine needle, whatever that thing's called, any Ukrainian flag, you know everything you need to know about those guys, but it makes no sense at all. Like those things have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, I mean, everything gets politicized when they don't necessarily need to be politicized. I mean, the pandemic is a perfect response to that. You had our two groups take these opposing positions that were both incoherent, one saying that the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is the equivalent of the bubonic plague, which is just nonsense, it's just not true, and the other saying that the vaccine is Bill Gates putting a chip in your brain or something. I mean, it's just nonsense. But people take these ridiculous, foolish positions because it is a way for them to signal their commitment to the tribe. And so what is really driving political behavior and social behavior right now in our country is not thoughtfulness, uh, is not discourse and debate and reasoning and testing hypotheses, but tribalism and dogmatism. And so it's it's really to our detriment as a society in so many different realms. Verlin, can you be any more optimistic? Um, can you save us from this death spiral of uh, pessimism that will tear America apart? Well, I mean, the, the only kind of shred of optimism I have is kind of what you pointed to earlier, that I think people are getting fed up with um, what's happening in our politics. And so I'm hopeful that people will start looking for new ways of thinking and talking about politics, because the current way of doing it is just leading to frustration for a lot of people. And I think, you know, ch changing a paradigm, changing um, a linguistic framework is really, really hard. It doesn't happen um, overnight, uh, but it can if that way of thinking and that linguistic framework is no longer useful for people, right? People use certain tropes or models or frameworks if they are useful, but if they're not useful, then I think uh, I'm hopeful that people will move on from them and, and move to something else, which would just be a more common sense way. I mean, um, we talk about in the book, there was once upon a time when everyone thought the way to talk about bodily health was the four humors theory. We can look back and laugh how, how silly, you know, you're trying to balance something about phlegm and blood and bile. I mean, it's just nonsense. But for centuries, this is how all the medical doctors um, and enlightened people talked about medicine. Well, after enough bleeding people to death and after enough medical malpractice, eventually people said, we got to come up with another way to think about medicine. And now we have better ways of talking about bodily health and medicine that does not rely on some simplistic, foolish, false, for humorous theory. And we're hopeful that something can happen with the same way with our political language, that we can stop with the simplistic, false, foolish, um, left-right way of thinking. Okay, the, the book is The Myth of Left and Right. We've been assured that it is semi-affordable, even though it's with one of these fancy university press um, things. Hiram Lewis and, and Verlin Lewis. Um, question, uh, Hiram, I saw that you were at Freedom Fest one year 
Um, have you guys considered going to talk about this stuff at Freedom Fest this year? I think we're in Memphis this year. Yeah, Mark Skousen is a friend, and uh, he said once the book is done, he wants to have us on to do a panel. So we're planning on doing that, and we hope to see you there this year. Okay, we will be there. And uh, how do we find you guys? You're both on social media, and, and you you both write a lot about this stuff. How do people find you? Start with you, Hiram. I'm hiding. I'm not on social media for the same reason I'm not on cocaine. Berlin, uh, you're, you're on the cocaine, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, just just limited amounts. You know, feel the same way about social media as I do government. Just uh, limited amounts is okay. So yeah, Twitter handle is Verlin Lewis, uh, but you can find me at my university website as well. I'm sort of envious of people that aren't on social media, but then again, this is the battlefield. This is where we engage people, and I I want to remain optimistic that these same tools that might divide us are also the tools that might give us the independence to think for ourselves and 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 start to rebuild this country from the bottom up. So. Um, I'll take one for the team on that. I'm I'm on social media. Thank you guys both, and uh, let's uh, let's get together at Freedom Fest and keep talking. Thanks, Matt. Matt. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.